Our Old Testament reading this morning is a responsive reading from the 51st Psalm, beginning in verse 1. Please read with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the fruit of your inward being, and you teach me wisdom with the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. I have for my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The New Testament reading this morning is from the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke beginning with the ninth verse. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter in. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's return to the scripture we read with Blake just a few minutes ago from Luke 18 as we continue our study in the gospel according to Luke. Before we pray, let's ask ask the Father to teach us. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. You've called us to be priests, not just prophets taking your word to the world around us in each of our lives, but you've called us to come before you and bring 
the cares and concerns of the world around us to you. Our Father, each week we have this great privilege. We pray together. We pray, Father, individually during the week before you. We pray for our, we're, we're priests. We pray for our families. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ here at, at Christ's prayers. Father, we thank you for this precious time that we have one time a week when, when all of us as priests gather and unite in mind and heart in praying together for those around us. Father, we thank you this morning that Doug Hay is here. We, we thank you for how you blessed and answered our prayers. We pray that you would continue to strengthen him day by day week by week. Our Father, we pray this morning for Priscilla Turner. The time near is near when you will take her home. We thank you for her testimony among us, for the stalwart faith that she's demonstrated, for the anticipation and joy that we've seen in her as she looks forward to going home. We pray that you would bless her son, Jonathan, as he cares for her. Give him strength. Draw both of them close to you. And we pray that, Father, you would keep her from pain. Speak to her now as only you're able to speak to her. Our Father, we pray for Sheila Noble, Tom Jeffries, Baum. We pray that you would draw close to her. Father, bring your word close to her. Bring your gospel close to her. And we pray that you would bring healing to her life in every way. We pray for Jim Bennington. We thank you, Father, for his strength, the strength of faith. Our Father, what an example he makes in, in, in continuing to be here on the Lord's day. We pray that you would bless him. Give him strength for this time. We pray for Billy Griggs, our father. May he know your presence. And now as we open your word, we pray that you would teach us. John Sartell cannot preach, cannot teach, so that our hearts will be changed or so that we will continue to grow in Christ. You alone are able to do that, Father. We've heard your voice in this room in the past. We're not the same people we were. You've changed us week after week as we've encountered your word, and we pray that we would continue to grow as individuals, as families, as a church, together in your word. Oh, Father, as children, we come now and ask you to teach us. Teach us, Father. Teach us. Change our hearts. Maybe some of us for the first time. In Jesus' name we pray and for his glory. Amen. The parable of two prayers. Or we could say it differently. We could say the parable of two prayers. Who's righteous? That is the subject of this parable. 
Who is righteous? This story Jesus told was scandalous to the people that heard him that day. Most of us have heard this parable so many times that we really do not understand how offensive it was then or still is today. Why did Jesus tell this parable? He tells us right at the beginning. Look at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The most important words in that introduction are who trusted in themselves, market who test trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's the reason for the story. Jesus said, this is the reason I'm telling you the story. That's the reason he's telling us this morning. The issue before the house that day and this morning is how does one become righteous? How did you, how did I, how do we become righteous? We must first understand what Jesus meant by righteous. Dekios is the Greek word righteous that Jesus used there. It means just. It means right. It means righteous. Righteous before the law. Just before the law. Right before the law. Jesus used this same word later in the parable. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. The Greek word used there is dikia. Came's comes from the same word, dikios. It means to render just, to make just, to render a judgment of this person is innocent, just before God. This parable was scandalous in the ears of the people that were there. Think about it. Pharisees were known for being perfectionists in matters of morality. The Pharisees were known for being religious to the nth degree. I can tell you that no one here, not me, not you, had the zeal and knowledge and understanding of the law that the Pharisees did. And they were religious to the point of being hyper-religious. Tax collectors, they were traitors to their country. They were considered thieves. They collected taxes for the Romans. Romans were the occupying army. They collected taxes for the Romans from their fellow Jews. And they added to the taxes that the Romans levied to fill their own pockets. If your daughter had lived in first century Jerusalem and she fell in love and was to marry a tax collector. You would disown her. You would tell her to change her name. And you would refuse. To have anything to do with the wedding. Or anything. That had to do with her afterward. Yet. In this story. Who. Is declared. Innocent before God. The tax collector. That was scandalous. Now there's some parallels 
between the two men in the story. They both went to the right place. They went up to the temple to meet with God. They both went to talk to God. Look at it. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. They both. This is a pair. These are the parallels. They both went to the temple. And they went to the temple to talk to God. They went to the right place. They went for the right purpose. But then, after you see those parallels, there's vast contrast. There's a contrast of the prayers, the two men. There's a contrast of the prayers in this story. Look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. We've already said it. The Pharisee was a moral man of high standing, a religious man. The tax collector was a, a white-collar thief. The people listening when Jesus started the story and talking about righteousness, the people listening to Jesus tell this story were thinking at that point, we know how this story will end. Rabbi Jesus has already said that he's talking about being righteous and just. The Pharisee has a lock. He's a slam dunk. Tax collector, he'll get his due. So you have the contrast of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the two people that are praying, the two prayers. Then there's a contrast of position. The Pharisee stands staunchly, proudly by himself. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. The tax collector also stood. That was a standard in the temple. People stood to pray. That was a standard position. But where did he stand? What was his position when he stood? The tax collector, look at verse 13, standing far off. The insinuation was that here was a Pharisee stood near the front where everyone could see. The tax collector, he was in the back. He was ashamed. You have a contrast of position, the contrast of the prayers, the contrast of position. And then you have the contrast of the prayers themselves, just the prayers they pray, their words, what they pray. Look at the Pharisee, verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have immediately recognize that the Pharisee is doing what? He's justifying himself before God. I am righteous. How is it justified? How does he consider himself innocent? By his own efforts. I am not like other men. I am not a thief. I am not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I, 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 I. There are two parts to his claim. One is to say, I'm not a sinner. I'm not like the extortioners, the adulterers. I'm not like this tax. I'm not like other men. I'm not a sinner. Father, you know that. And then he said, I excel in my piety. 
fast twice a week. There was no law in Scripture that said he demanded that he fast twice a week. He was, God, I'm excelling. Look at my fasting. God is not the source of this man's justification. He's not relying upon God's grace. He doesn't need it. Think about this. Think about this. That he is standing. He's talking to God now. He's praying. So he's standing in God's court. Here are the great angels, the seraphim. They're listening to this. This man is arguing in the courtroom his innocence. Blake, as good as you are, Bill Ray, wherever you are, as good as you are in the courtroom, you would not want to be representing this man before God. Think about that. He's standing there before a just, omniscient God, a holy God. Look how righteous I am. You've got to, God, you've got to be proud of me. The contrast of the tax collector's prayer is striking. Look at verse 13. That this tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast, which was a sign of agony. Emotional agony. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The subject is not himself. It's not I, I, I. God was a subject. God, I have no righteous act to plead. I, God, have mercy. I'm a sinner. So you have the contrast of the prayers of the story. You have the contrast of the positions. You have the contrast of the actual prayers they pray. But there's there's a last contrast, the contrast of, of, of pronouncement. This is where the scandal comes. Look at verse 14. He was speaking of the tax collector. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, just before God, innocent before God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He humbles himself will be exalted. They were not expecting Jesus to say this. As I said before, it should have been a slam dunk in favor of the Pharisee. The tax collector even admitted that he was a fellow. The Pharisee was not righteous before God. He looked righteous. The tax collector was righteous. Was Jesus starting a new view of God? A God who was unjust? A God who was a crooked judge? Was the God of Jesus a judge who condemned the righteous and rewarded the unrighteous? You know better. He was bringing... He was bringing Israel back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We read a prayer of David this morning. A prayer that David prayed, maybe in the temple. He did not use the language of the Pharisee. Look at it in your scripture sheet. Look at it in your bulletin too. Psalm 51.3. For I know my transgressions. There's none of this. I'm not an extortioner. At this point, he was committing to be, he was 
confessing to be an adulterer and a murderer. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is right or done what is evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Does that sound like the prayer that the Pharisee prayed? Was David telling God how righteous he was? It sounded more like the prayer of the tax collector, didn't it? This is consistent all through Scripture. This is what God said. Look at Jeremiah 2.22, although you wash yourself with soda. In other words, you may make an effort to clean yourself up and reform your life and use an abundance of soap. The stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign God. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And I could go on for hours reading from the Old Testament. Such prayers, such statements about the heart of man. You see, the Pharisee in his prayer had not only been arguing before God and saying, I I'm innocent, I'm just, just look at the purity of my life. He was actually calling God a liar. All through the Old Testament, God talked about the sinful heart, the sinful mind of man. God had already rendered his judgment, but the Pharisee was in denial. The Apostle John, he was, he may have been there that day. He may have heard Jesus tell this parable. Look at 1 John 1 8. Listen to this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, just so you understand, I'm the minister. We've got elders. We've got deacons here. It's impossible for you as members, for deacons, for elders, for this minister or that minister. It's impossible for us to come before God without our sin. It's not possible. I could never approach God when I haven't sinned. Not just the previous day, but in that very day, and not just in the previous hour of that very hour. I can't come without my sin. I can come without confessing it. I can come deceiving myself. And not thinking I need to confess. C.S. Lewis wrote a trilogy that's commonly known as the Space Trilogy. Three excellent books, different but excellent. They continue, it's a continuous story that each book stands on its own, but it's it's all one story. Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. It's the greatest description of biblical evil that I've ever read outside the Bible. In the second book, Paralandra, the hero of the three books is named Ransom. He's a person like us, he's a man. And he comes before two creatures that are from the other world, these great, magnificent creatures. You would call them, we would call them archangels. Magnificent creatures who stand in the presence of God without sin. They're huge in form, beautiful to see. And they see Ransom approaching them. And one archangel says to the other, Look on him, beloved, and love him. 
He is indeed but breathing dust. And one careless touch would unmake him. And in his best thoughts, in his very best thoughts, there are such things mingled as if we thought them, our light would perish. People, that, that's, that's exactly what the angels in heaven must think of you and me as we approach God as we came into the sanctuary this morning. Let me read it again. Look on him, beloved, and love him. He is indeed, but just he's just breathing dust. And a careless touch would unmake him. And in his best thoughts are such things mingled as if we thought them, our light would perish. Listen, there's a message here. The Pharisee did not know who he was. He did not know his true identity. He had actually believed the lie. He actually stood before God and argued that he was righteous in his own effort. The Pharisee was essentially saying, you know, when I have people tell me constantly, uh, as, as we talk about Christ in the church, they say, well, I'm a good person. You, you say, well, you, know, you know, what are you going to do when you're faced with God in glory? And he says, why should I let you in my heaven? People, most of the people in Fayette County are going to say, I'm this home county in which we live, they're going to say, I'm going to tell him how good I am. God knows I'm a good person. I pay my debts. I love my wife. I love my husband. I love my children. I work hard. That's the answer. They don't know themselves. It's a costly thing to deceive yourself. We might be deceiving ourselves. How do you know that you really understand? How can you know that you really understand that you're a sinner before God? I'm sure that most of us entering Christ Presbyterian this church this morning would not have prayed the prayer of the Pharisee. We wouldn't have done it. But how do you know you that you authentically understand that you are a sinner? He tells us here, look at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You see, when you think of yourself as righteous, automatically what happens, automatically you treat others as sinners. God, I thank you I'm not like those other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The most alarming thing I hear from people who claim to be Christians, the most alarming statement I hear from them, usually, is when they see some sin and they make a statement like, that person couldn't be a Christian. You know, I could never do anything like that. I could never do that. Look what this person, I couldn't do that. Christians can't do that and still be Christians. I would never do such a thing. I'm telling you, that's the surest sign of self-righteousness that you can find on this earth. It's the pot calling the kettle black. 
You want to know if you're self-righteous? You want to know if you really understand you're a sinner? Do you look at other people's sins? Say, I'm not like that. I couldn't do that. You've heard me speak many times, and you'll hear me speak many more times about Dr. R.T.L. Liston. He was my college president and then came to the seminary where I attended and was a visiting professor there. I cannot, I could talk for the next week and could not really communicate to you the impact that this man had on my life. One day he was standing in front of our, our seminary class. He was, he was just, he was just an erudite man, just naturally humble man. But he was standing there in his Brooks Brothers suit. He was near 80 years old. And he read from, he was talking about this subject of being a sinner. And this man was a saint. He read from Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he looked at us and with seriousness, he wasn't laughing, with seriousness. He looked at this group of young men going into the ministry. And he said, gentlemen, I don't know how you do against such teaching, but I don't do too well. I'm an adulterer. This was a man in his 80s, a great theologian. He knew his true identity. You see, when sin has eaten your lunch and you know it, you will not point the finger at others when sin eats their lunch. Next time you start to condemn or start to gossip, Assuming that you're not capable of such sins that you've seen. Ask yourself this question. Have I not sinned in like fashion? Am I not also guilty before God? Folks, it's one thing to know you're unrighteous. It's quite another to confess it. You so it's so it's so easy to say, well, this is a biblical doctrine. Presbyterian doctrine, Reformed doctrine, Biblical doctrine, Classical Christian doctrine said we're sinners. I believe that. It's easy to say that. But to get up in front of a congregation, get up to tell another person, to say to your children, you know, I, I've sinned. I've really messed up here. How often do our children hear that? How often do our neighbors hear that? How often do our wives hear that? How often do our husbands hear that? Not enough. For it's one thing to confess it as a biblical doctrine. It's another thing to confess it as a fact and truth about our own lives. Now, that, that tax collector was not saying, I know biblical theology. I know it. And it tells me I'm a sinner. He was saying, I am. I am the sinner by virtue of what I think and say and do every day. That takes humility. That kind of humility is not easy. I'm an adulterer. I'm a liar. I'm a gossip. 
I love my stuff more than God. I'm a thief. I'm a hypocrite. There's not one thing in my life that would recommend me to God, except my sin. That's just not easy to say. That's why Luke attached the episode of the children coming to Jesus in this parable. Wonder where that came from? He was saying the same thing. The disciples, it was near the, you know, the, the disciples, here was the Messiah. And, and mothers were bringing their babies to him. And they said, he didn't have time for this. Look what Jesus said in verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter. He said to the disciples, you, you, what do you mean? You need to be like these little children. You, be, you need to be like these babies. Now, some folks miss the point entirely. They think Jesus is saying you must become as innocent and unbiased and pure as children. I've heard that preached from the pulpit. It's just always astounded me. Anyone that would say that about little children and little babies, they've never had babies and children. The smallest children are selfish, jealous, territorial, prejudiced, and far from pure. In fact, you see sin more blatantly in babies. We grow up and we learn to hide it. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was referring to a baby's helplessness and dependence. These babies can't live unless you feed them, unless you provide for them as parents. To enter my kingdom, you must become as helpless and dependent. You must become like the tax collector who begs, who doesn't come carrying his treasure chest of good works and his name and all the other stuff. God have mercy. We don't want to be helpless before God. We want to say, look what I did. James Harvey was a young man, a young minister. He had an older and wiser elder in his congregation. The man was a farmer. His name was Clayton. And once they were discussing together the greatest impediment to spiritual growth, to real spiritual advancement. And the minister said, surely, Clayton, the greatest impediment to our spiritual growth is our failure to renounce our sinful self. And farmer Clayton disagreed. He said, preacher, the greatest impediment to our spiritual growth is our failure to renounce our righteous self. We don't want to become helpless and needy sinners. If you come to this table pleading you are just by your own good works, you will call down God's condemnation on yourself. For the proud will be humbled. Our hymn is how deep the Father's love for us.